This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You heard in the news uh, just now that there have been some some changes to uh, uh, landlord-tenant uh, legislation. And uh, joining us on the line is Stephanie Cox. She's a housing and tenant lawyer with Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. Stephanie, good to have you on the show uh, today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for uh, having me. This is um, this is interesting. Uh, the gist of it is that uh, landlords will not be able to evict tenants without compensation. Am I am I getting that correctly? Well, it's it's a little more specific than that. Okay. If a landlord wishes to move in uh, to the rental unit, they've always been required to provide their tenants with 60 days notice of termination of such. But the new legislation is requiring that uh, the landlord compensate the tenant at least, or the minimum would be one month's worth of rent uh, for having to move out in these circumstances. Okay, so this is specifically around the the idea that the landlord, he or herself, is going to move into that unit? Yes, yeah, so if a landlord per- personally requires the unit under its Section 48 of the Residential Tenancies Act, they're required to provide the tenant with um, an N-12 notice, which is a form prescribed by the Landlord and Tenant Board, and uh, the tenant must have 60 days notice of their termination in that, in that notice, and uh, if a tenant does not move out by that termination date, uh, the landlord then is required to file an application for eviction at the Landlord and Tenant Board where they have to prove that they have a good faith intention of moving into the unit. And so the Landlord and Tenant Board now will not order any eviction of that tenant if uh, the landlord has not compensated that tenant one month's worth of rent. And, and that uh, burden of proof that you just talked about, uh, that you know, in good faith they're, they're going to move into the unit, what what would that proof look like? Because I'm sitting here thinking, well, what's to stop any landlord from just saying to some tenant that they don't like or a tenant that ha- is caused them problems uh, to use this legislation as a way to get them out um, and then just turn around and say, oh, I've changed my mind. I've decided to rent it out to somebody that isn't me. And you've—that's exactly the issue that tenants advocates are, are have always had with this portion of the legislation, and even even now um, with the one month uh, compensation owing, we we don't believe that this really disincentivizes any landlord from um, making the allegation that they intend to move in, because we know that uh, with rising uh, rental rates. Uh, a landlord can quickly turn a profit greater than one month's worth of rent. Um, And so at the Landlord and Tenant Board, they have to prove on a balance of probabilities that they have what's called a quote-unquote good faith intention to move in. Now, unfortunately, um, our position at the the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic is that that's quite, quite a low threshold because landlords are only required to file an affidavit statement of such. Oh. And, um, so they can lie. They 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 could, uh, and the landlord and tenant board People lie uh, on affidavits all day long. <laughs> you know well, that you're a lawyer. Well, it does happen, and it's it's certainly um, discouraging to see um, when landlords aren't put to the test. Now, uh, 
There is uh, outstanding case law that says that um, through these proceedings, uh, adjudicators, the tribunal members, should be looking to um, circumstances or the context that may suggest that they're motivated um, for reasons other than you know, a legitimate reason of, of moving in. And so we do see many um, low-income tenants who have historically been paying uh, affordable rent uh, being pushed out through uh, applications such as this so that uh, landlords can turn around and re-rent the unit. So while we do welcome um, this, this step in the right direction, uh, we certainly don't believe that um, this legislative change is, is enough uh, to protect tenants. Can we just call it what it is? It's just pure baloney and lip service and has no teeth and it's just another layer of um, black and white printing that can appear in an act that people can dance around. Like, let's call it what it is. It's just garbage. Uh, I would I would I would agree um, that it really lacks teeth. And um, another issue is that while uh, they've changed made this uh, this change, um, they haven't made uh, the change to the act um, when a purchaser um, claims that they're intending to move in and that, that right. they personally require the unit. So um, the legislation hasn't changed to compensate a tenant in that circumstance. And that also is ironic given that a purchaser clearly has greater resources than a renter by virtue of them being a homeowner and being able to purchase. So one would think that if, if this legislation was really intended um, to achieve the, the ends that it originally was, was intended for, um, that, that the compensation scheme uh, given to tenants and that the termination date would reflect uh, the the realities of renters, which is that rent is very expensive these days. The cost of moving with first and last month's rent, mm-hmm. um, and um, effectively, uh, low income tenants are disproportionately impacted by this. And we're seeing um, many low income tenants displaced from their communities because. 60 days is just not enough time to find affordable and sustainable housing. It's not enough time to save uh, for, for um, the uh, higher rental costs that, that uh, they'll be encountering when they, when they have to go find new housing. Well, and let's be honest, they can't, most of these people aren't going to have the resources to even take it to, I think you called it a tribunal. Yeah, uh, so the, uh, it's the Landlord and Tenant Board, which is a tribunal. And uh, who, who adjudicates those those uh, things? Are they retired judges? Are they court judges? Who, who no. makes so the calls? A tribunal is um, a quasi-judicial forum, and so it does have the thrust of a court in that, you know, um, there is legislation, it's binding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the tribunal members are called adjudicators, and so... Um, they would be similar to a justice of the peace. So they are legally trained, uh, but um, they don't have the same requirements um, that uh, judges have uh, to, to take their positions. But the Landlord and Tenant Board is uh, the only, uh, has, is the only um, tribunal or court, if you will, uh, that has the authority uh, to, uh, to hear matters uh, 
that arise under the Residential Tenancies Act. And so uh, they have exclusive jurisdiction to adjudicate matters concerning landlords and tenants um, when they fall uh, within the jurisdiction of um, the Residential Tenancies Act. And how backed the up are those? They're the only authority that can order an eviction. So many times we see um, tenants coming to our office saying, oh, my landlord said that I, I have to move out or they're calling the police or um, they're given a notice saying you have to move out by X date. Right. And the reality is that if you are a tenant uh, who is protected under the Residential Tenancies Act, that you have the right uh, to uh, have um, your landlord put to the test uh, through the hearing process of the Landlord and Tenant Board, um, and that means you don't move out. Uh, when these notices are given, and that that means that the landlord is forced to file an application for eviction, whereby they will have to substantiate their allegations, and it will be determined be determined by an adjudicator as to whether or not uh, there is a legal basis to justify the eviction. Well, I hope that some people are listening to you today and picking up that information, because my guess is that most people would be intimidated by the initial letter, and they would start panicking and trying to figure out where they're going to live. Yes, that's, that's exactly uh, what we see happening. However, um, there is a large portion of the Hamilton population that has really uh, become fantastic advocates for themselves. Uh, we've got a lot of community um, networks, um, and uh, there's the Hamilton Tenant Solidarity Network, which is a group of volunteers and tenants who... Uh, are fighting uh, gentrification because of the adverse impacts of it, such as displacement, and um, help tenants uh, become more aware of what their rights are and to feel supported when they are trying to enforce their rights. Because we do, unfortunately, see many tenants trying to enforce their rights, um, and then uh, in response, they receive a lot of reprisal um, by their landlords to a point where they feel bullied out. So. If any tenant uh, wants to enforce their rights and wants more support, they're welcome to attend the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic and get in touch with the Hamilton Solidar Tenant Solidarity Network uh, because there is powers. There are powers in numbers, and um, we already know that in a landlord-tenant relationship, um, there is a, a, an inherent power imbalance, and so trying to to balance that and ensure that you um, have your rights protected and ensure that you, you, you are living in conditions that are up to standard um, mm -hmm. is, is very important for our community members here in Hamilton. I, I've only got about 20 seconds left, but just for laughs, for people listening to this um, bit of uh, nonsense around this legislation, not what you're delivering to us, obviously you're helping us here. Um, how, how long did it take to get this feckless change put in place? Just just laughs how long did has this fight been going on to, just to get this useless bit put into the, the uh, act? well let I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that uh, housing advocates um, at this legal clinic have been pushing for greater protections through this act for years mm -hmm. so this certainly um, didn't happen overnight no nope. I, I do think that it, it is somewhat of a response to the growing uh, housing market and, and the boom uh, that we've seen because that trickles down to tenants. 
So we're happy that, you know, the attention is there, but it certainly isn't enough. And uh, what's sad is there's another section of the Act um, where a landlord can can evict uh, a tenant for their own benefit, um, where we call it a no-fault eviction, just like like an eviction for a landlord's own use would be. And and yet there's there's this provision in, in uh, that pertains to, to this section of the act where it's um, the landlord needs the tenant to vacate for demolition or to, to um, complete extensive repairs. And that section actually gives tenants 120 days notice to move and compensation compensation of three months rent. And to me that reflects um, the realities and and. Um, and, and assist tenants um, in, in, in a situation such as this. So it's, it's really odd why um, this amendment to the legislation was made and didn't go okay. so far as to compensate and provide the notice. Uh, All right, we've got to run, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie Cox, housing and tenant lawyer with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. Uh, thanks for shedding a lot of light on this uh, for us today. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the long weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you again down the road. Thank you very much, and enjoy those ribs. All right. Thanks very Take much. Care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There's Stephanie Cox, uh, housing and tenant lawyer with Hamilton Community uh, Legal. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You heard in the news uh, about um, that autistic boy who uh, it's been ruled is not allowed to have a service dog uh, in class. Uh, the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal ruled that... Uh, a nine-year-old boy with autism can't bring his service dog with him into class. I want to know what you think about this. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Um, the decision says uh, Kenner Fee's family failed to prove that having his uh, uh, black Labrador Ivy in the classroom would help him with his education. Um, th- this, I, I got to tell you right off the top, I mean, one of the things that they pay you to do as a talk show host is bring your opinion to the table. I think this sucks. I think it's a, d- a bad decision. Um, this dog was helping this boy regulate his behavior. It was keeping the boy calm. It was giving the boy um, a sense of safety. Uh, and if, if the boy is calm and, and, and can feel more safe, even within himself, uh, even if there's you know no threats around him to his safety, but it's his perceptions, then the boy is more likely able to focus and I would think um, would be able to, to enjoy learning a little bit more and, and would learn more. So I don't know. I think this, this one really blows. But joining us on the line, uh, to talk about it is uh, Wade Paziamka with uh, Ross and McBride. He's a lawyer with Wade, uh, Ross and McBride. Wade, two appearances with me in one week. I don't know how you manage it. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Jimmy. Yeah, so uh, so this story, uh, this young boy in, in Kitchener and his family have lost the Human Rights Tribunal uh, to see whether the his service dog could be in classroom with us. I'll throw it over to you. I, I think the decision's terrible. Um, I want to know what our listeners think, but what do you think led to this decision ultimately? Well, I think that uh, ultimately the tribunal in this very specific case found that there were other ways to accommodate the, the child in the classroom that didn't involve having the service dog. So he he didn't have it for the past couple of years, and his behavior had been improving, and he was doing fine. And so they the school ultimately, I think, decided, well, 
we don't need to let him have his service dog because he's, he's doing okay and autism spectrum disorder uh, involves social deficits and the, so they thought the dog may further isolate the child and, and cause him to rely more heavily on the dog rather than his peers and the teachers. I, so, I, 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 doubt, I don't you know really, what, I've got I to stop you right there because I don't think it has anything to do with that. Um, I, I know I asked you for your opinion, and I and I want to, you to continue to deliver it. But I think it has more to do with the the dog being in the classroom and and people being afraid of dogs and allergies and all that usual hoo ha. Do you not agree? Yeah, I mean that that comes into play. I think, and there's ways to deal with that, right? So students with allergies in the class, you can remove them. You can move them to a second class. Often there's two grade two classes and two grade three classes, for example. So there's ways to deal with that. But I think. Yeah, the fact that it's a, a larger animal that's going to be in the classroom, they may be worried it's going to distract other children. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons that ran through their mind that they didn't specifically say uh, at the tribunal. On the other side of things, if I, if I try to look at it from the other perspective, um, there are people who will say, where, where do, you know, how, how much more do we have to give in to individual rights in the education system? Like, it's, we're already running up against, you know, the peanut allergy thing, the egg allergy thing, the this thing, the that thing. You know, how much more do we have to do? And and a lot of people would look at this and say this is just another example of an individual trying to um, gain rights over everybody else in the class. Well, I mean, do you agree I, with that? So I yeah, I, I don't agree with that. I would yeah. I would suggest that they look at it from the other perspective, right? This is yeah. a child who has autism spectrum disorder. He's not like every other child in the classroom, and there's deficits right. that he has that everybody else doesn't. And so the dog or accommodations or people with peanut allergies, accommodations for them, for example, is just leveling the playing field. I don't think it's special rights. It's, it's leveling the playing field. So um, these uh, tribunals, um, how arduous are they uh, in terms of... Uh, what you need to bring to them and what you need to show and and how long does it get uh, how long does it take to get a decision give us a give us an idea of how those run yeah they they take a long time so often in education cases most people would think it's not worth it to even bring the application to the tribunal so you file the application and about a year later you're going to find yourself at a hearing and then you're probably going to wait somewhere from three to six months after that to even get a decision so it's a year and a half battle before you're going to you're going to have any outcome. And so for a lot of people, they're going to be out of that grade and into the next grade by that time, a year and a half, and so it's not worth it. And that's a problem with the tribunal generally. And, and uh, that, that's, that is a problem because so many people uh, either don't know what they can, can access or don't have the strength or, or money or time to go through a process like that. And that's got to be frustrating for you at times as a, as a law practitioner, uh, knowing that a lot of people really can't, really can't access in reality um, the things that you know are within their rights to access yeah it's extremely frustrating and the tribunal is getting slower and slower as they get more backlog and so a lot of people who have legitimate human rights complaints aren't finding the, the help that they need from the tribunal and they have really nowhere else to turn so it, it is very frustrating so um, is there a an opportunity uh, in theory, for this family to appeal this decision and carry this process on. Yeah, so they could seek what's called a judicial review, where they would go to a, a higher court with three judges. But typically, in these types of cases, from a practical perspective, um, it's very, very difficult to overturn a decision from the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. So, practically speaking, there's there's not much recourse for them from this decision. Right. But I, I do want to point out that this decision shouldn't be taken as uh, for, from other schools. 
across the province as uh, being precedent that they don't have to allow service animals into their schools. This is a very, very specific case based on specific facts. Yeah, that's a very interesting point to uh, to make. So, um, yeah, don't, as you said, uh, don't count this as precedent. Uh, each case is, it has to be, uh, you know, looked at on, on the facts uh, around it, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, that's great. Uh, Wade, uh, I'm glad that you could join us on the program today. Thank you so much for uh, being here and uh, enlightening us a little bit on what the rules and regs are and that kind of thing. And uh, um, we'll talk to you again down the road, I'm sure. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're going to talk about clowns and scary clowns. Uh, With the remake of Stephen King's It... Uh, set to uh, happen in mid-September. Liz Russell, you're you're afraid of uh, our producer. Liz Russell's here. You're afraid of of clowns? No. Oh, you're not afraid. You just like the whole scary clown genre thing. No, I like horror movies. You like this horror one movies? Okay. Me out, When's it out? When's the new Stephen September King? September eighth, I believe. September eighth. Okay. And it's a remake of Stephen King's yeah. It, which originally came out when around 1990 something 1990. like that. I was like one when it came out. <laughs> Thanks for making me feel even older. And I haven't seen that one, but uh, you said that Tim Curry's in that one. Yeah, he plays the the clown. Okay, all right. So, and I noticed, I have to say, I've noticed over the last 15 or 20 years, this thing about people not liking clowns. And I grew up loving clowns. They were funny. They were goofy. They had funny makeup. There was nothing scary about them. They were just goofy. It was kind of funny. Anyway, Scott Henderson joins us. He's a pop culture expert at Brock University. Scott, good to have you on the program today. Good afternoon, Jamie. All right, so um, does pop culture influence how people feel about clowns, do you think? It, you know, let's get let's get right into this. Oh, I think for sure. I think, as you were suggesting, you know, the last 15, 20 years, especially since Stephen King's the first iteration of It came out, I think it's ramped up. I think, you know, there was a fear there. I mean, there's been evil clowns. You can go back 19th century and earlier. I think Pagliacci and opera, you know, that opera has a murderous clown in there. You know, clowns have always been mischievous troublemakers, but I certainly think the current fear of clowns was really brought to the fore by it. And and it is, I think a crime's been committed here because, uh, you know, as I said, clowns to me were always associated with good times and fun and and kids birthday parties and off to the circus and you know how many clowns can you fit in that little clown car and all of that kind of kind of stuff and then people like king just kind of took them and stole them from us i think in some ways i mean i think that fear of clowns may have been there because you know they they do create trouble they are kind of deformed or odd looking humans to small children you know they invite you over to sniff their flower. They squirt you in the face. I mean, <laughs> no, there's, there's an inherent nastiness there, isn't there? <laughs> the floppy shoes are intimidating, you know. The, the, the colorful wigs, the big red nose. I mean, there, are, you know, there is a sense that you know that this kind of like, medical condition of chlorophobia, this fear of clowns, is you know tied to that kind of grotesque or distorted appearance that can upset some kids. But you're right. I mean, you know. I feel bad for the ones who come to birthdays and tie balloon animals. You got some kids <laughs> crying in the corner, and you know someone's just trying to entertain and make their day. Well, I think I think it's safe to say, and I think we had that funny thing happen. Well, not maybe not so funny. We had that crazy thing going with scary clowns last 
around Halloween last year where these guys were literally out to try and terrify people, and that, that was not a good thing. Um, but I think it's safe to assume now that in pop culture, clowns are just considered creeps. That's it. And I think, you know, that in part is the it effect. And there's been, you know, lots of other, you know, films, television shows, American Horror Stories, Twisty the Clown was, I think, one example more recently. So I think this idea of the creepy clown standing in the woods maybe came out of that. And, you know, that image, again, a classic hit down on the sewer kind of staring up at the kids. And, you know, so you have that kind of factor that now been ramped up you know especially when you get into social media youtube and you know there's lots of videos out there of you know clowns playing some pretty awful pranks for sure uh scott henderson pop culture expert at brock university appreciate you uh dropping by today thanks so much for this always a pleasure have a good weekend take care care. bye-bye the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 chml